Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Kelly Olson joins the show for a conversation about ancient Roman clothing. So what the Romans would have worn in the ancient period. And predominantly, we're going to focus the conversation in on the years 200 BCE to 200 CE. So the third to third centuries BCE to CE respectively. Dr. Olson is Professor of Classics and Graduate Chair in the Department of Classical Studies at Western University based in London, Ontario, Canada. She has written numerous publications over her career, including authoring the books Dress in the Roman Woman, Self-Presentation and Society, which was published by Routledge. And she's also author of the book Masculinity and Dress in Roman Antiquity, which was also published by Routledge. And Dr. Olson joins the show today from London, Canada. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's great to be here. As I mentioned to you, Kelly, in the correspondence we were having before the show that I lived in London, Ontario, Canada for over 10 years. So being yeah. someone that... <laughs> so weird. A very co happy coincidence, right? And um, uh, being someone from, from, from London, Ontario, Canada, who, who had a residence, uh, had a residence there at some point, I'd... Uh, uh, lived in a, a couple different spots over the years, a few different spots in London. But it's, but if you're from London, you know it's protocol when you're you're speaking to different people, not physically in London, that that you 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 accompanying it with you're from London, Ontario, or London, Canada, because a lot of times people get confused and think you're from London, UK, when you say London. <laughs> yes, we call that the real London. <laughs> well, it's interesting. London, Ontario. Well, it's interesting because it actually even happens when you're speaking to Canadians. I'll, I, I, in the past, I, I, I'd been in uh, Toronto, and I'll say, I'll say London, and someone will say uh, London, Canada, so, or, or rather London, London, UK. So you just you get into the habit. But London is a uh, great um, mid-sized city, and, and, and it has a lot of um, uh, caring and hardworking people. So I want to make that note that uh, London is a fabulous city, and it's uh, one, wonderful to have you on the show today, Kelly. Yeah, thank you. So when it comes to Roman garments, this, this topic that we're talking about today, what do scholars predominantly lean on uh, for evidence to understand what Romans wore? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, clothing scholars, dress historians of other periods get to actually look at garments, right, which have existed. So if you're a clothing man um, and your period is 1500 onwards, no problem. You know, there's plenty of clothing that uh, has survived. But unfortunately, if you're an ancient or a medieval clothing historian, you can't work with the garments themselves because most of them have not survived. So um, I work with literary evidence, uh, so different genres like poetry and history, biography. I also look at um, papyrus for mentions of clothing. Um, there's mentions of clothing in legal sources. And I also look at Roman art, so the, the way that clothing is portrayed in Roman art, so sources. Okay, okay. So how, so let's, um want to find a, an appropriate way to kind of compartmentalize this conversation where we want to for the most part get to in under an hour is uh the contours of what romans would have would have wore so so uh and i and i and i'm making the presumption that um women and men had different attires 
Yeah, they, they do. Yeah, they did. Okay, so when it comes to attire then, Kelly, generally, can you describe what men and women would, would wear in this period that we're speaking about? Yeah, the, the basic building blocks of Roman dress are the same for everybody. Um, it doesn't really change according to gender or rank or status. So everybody wears a tunic, which is just a, like we would, it looks a bit like a sleeveless dress, right? And everyone, I think, knows what a tunic looks like from Hollywood, Hollywood productions. And the length of the tunic um, depended very much on your position in life and your gender. So women wear long tunics to their ankles for reasons of sexual modesty. Uh, slaves um, wore shorter tunics, probably hitting themselves about mid-thigh because slaves have to rush everywhere. They're doing errands and manual labor. Um, and men, senatorial men, upper class men, probably wore tunics which hit them around the knees or so. Um, and then all the uh, classes would tie their tunic or gird it with a, with a word that's often translated as belt, but it really is like a, a piece of rope, right? Because they don't have belts with teeth. Um, so the basic building block, the tunic, is actually worn by everybody, children, slaves, men, women. Um, on, on top of the tunic, uh, you, what you wore depended very much on, again, your gender, but also on your class. So women, on top of their tunic, would normally wear a cloak, which is called a paula, um, which could be drawn up out of the head if, uh, on the head if you're out of doors or not. Uh, but again, um, the paula or cloak depended very much on your class. So lower class women probably didn't wear cloaks because they're not attached to themselves at any point. They're hard to keep in place. Um, there's no way you can do manual labor in a big voluminous cloak. So poor class, poor class women probably just had a tunic. Um, upper class women had a paula or cloak, and there is some indication that for a few decades in Roman history, upper class women and probably women of the business class, the, the wealthier classes, wore an overdress called a stola, which looks like a moderate slip, and it's just a kind of slip-like overdress that you put over top the, um, the tunic. So this is a kind of extra layer added to the woman's um, dress for reasons of sexual modesty. And again, lower class women um, tended not to wear the stola because again, heavier clothing means that you can't um, work with your hands for a living. Um, cloth is very expensive. Um, the, the stola is just another layer, so it's hot and uncomfortable. Uh, for men, what men wore over their tunic also depends very much on their class. So lower class men um, probably don't have togas. They probably don't own togas, even though they're entitled to, as citizens, they're entitled to own and wear a toga. But togas are uncomfortable, they're expensive, they're voluminous, they're probably hot because they're made of wool. Uh, like the palo, the toga is not attached to itself at any point with a pin. So it, it actually is, um, it probably was quite a feat keeping it uh, together and looking presentable. Not something you could wear if you're a manual laborer. So the poor class men may have owned a toga, which they might have worn for like special occasions, uh, but probably, you know, toga ownership in the lower classes was um, not as extensive as we think. In the upper classes, that's what men were supposed to wear over their tunic when they went outside not for reasons of warmth, um, but because it was the respectable thing to do. If you're a upper class Roman citizen, you're supposed to be advertising 
um, that fact. And the toga can be colored or bordered according to um, your position in society and um, your, your, your kind of judicial rank or your social status. Uh, the toga also changes according to which, which um, century you're in in Roman history. Um, it's often said of the ancient Romans that there is no fashion. And I suppose there isn't really in as much as the tunic and the toga and the paula kind of remain the same for centuries. For centuries, that's what Roman men and women wore. But the toga goes through different draping styles. Um, it goes through different um, sort of uh, um, kinds of voluminousness. So the first century CE toga is much bigger, much wider than the Republican toga. And for women, the, the fashion seems to have come not in the, the style of clothing, but in surface decoration, so color and pattern, um, things like that. Did everyone, for the most part, wear a tunic then? It was that prevalent or ubiquitous? Yeah, everyone, everyone wears a tunic. So slaves, men, women, it's just the, it's the basic um, element of ancient clothing. Children wear tunics, everybody wears tunics, yeah. What were the tunics made of? Uh, usually wool, that's what the, the Romans um, tend to make all their clothing out of, which I can't imagine would be all that comfortable in a Mediterranean summer. Uh, but this is what they, they um, continually make their clothing of. There is some indication that the um, clothing can be made of linen, although it doesn't seem to have been as popular as wool. And there is a lot of moral outcry against silk in the first century CE and following. Um, the, the Romans discover silk um, not only through Greece, but there's all kinds of indication that they also need Chinese silk as well. So the, the Roman method of um, silk clothing production is mostly to um, unpick the pure silk clothing or the pure or take the pure silk they're getting from China or Greece and then interweave it with linen or cotton. This keeps the cost down. But man, the moralists are not happy with silk clothing. They think it's just really, um, you know, lascivious. It outlines the body. Men should just not be wearing silk at all. It's not Roman. It's not manly. Um, and so, uh, oddly enough, you know, in the Mediterranean climate, the Romans really did cleave to, to, to wool for most of their history. During this period that we're speaking about, the geographic demarcation changes quite a bit for for Rome. Um, or for the most part, are we speaking about um, what would have been worn on the Italian peninsula? Yeah, so when I say Roman, I'm referring at once to the capital city and also to, I mean, historians also use the word Roman to refer to wherever Roman culture came to impose itself. So you can talk about Roman Illyria or Roman Britain, of course. Um, but yes, most of my own research centers on Rome and Italy. So yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned some places that they imported um, into, I believe you said Greece, and I think you said China as, as well. Um, can you expand on that? What's known about where they imported some of their goods for, for their garment production? Yeah, um, sort of. Not, there's not a lot of evidence about um, Roman importing left for us. Um, there's, a, there's some um, indication in our legal texts. Um, so for um, garments, there was a lot of wool production and good wool production in Italy. So I think the majority of wool comes from Italy. Um, authors also mentioned Spain as a place to get good wool. 
Um, and silk, of course, comes from the island of Kos in Greece, uh, and also from, um, from China. And the Romans do import some linen from Egypt. Uh, and I think that's about it. Um, there's not a lot of clothing or fabric or um, the tools to make clothing import because the Romans are so attached to wool and that can be had in Italy. What were the different colors that you came across in the records that people would have worn and, and what did the colors say or communicate about the person? Yeah, this is super interesting because in addition to thinking that Rome is a city full of men wearing togas, um, modern, modern people also imagine Rome as a city that's white, right? So everybody wears white clothing and white togas and the buildings are white. And in fact, Rome was a very, very colorful city. And the problem, of course, is that in terms of statuary and architectural ornament, the color, which is vegetable matter, does not survive archaeologically. It's very fugitive. So it sort of slides up over time, and we're left with these white statues and white buildings. And in fact, the statues and, and statues were extremely colorful. Um, the same thing goes for the clothing. So natural wool is uh, a kind of off-white. You can get pure white wool, you can get darker wool. And it does seem that men tended to stick to those natural wool colors for their uh, clothing. Women, however, had the greater part of the rainbow to themselves. So um, we hear about all kinds of different colors of female clothing. There was pink, there were blues, green, um, yellow, uh, black clothing for mourning, um, but also as a fashion item. There was gray, there was pale brown. So women's clothing was extremely colorful and men's was not so much, which is very like, um, you know, kind of uh, modern clothing. And by modern, I mean 19th century and following where men are rather more staid in their choice of clothing colors, whereas women have this entire gamut of color to choose from. But the one color that is that men do wear and women do wear as well is purple. And purple had connotations of uh, royalty and um, power and uh, expense. And so men do use it uh, in a sparing kind of way on their clothing, normally for stripes on the tunic or borders on the toga. And purple is a super interesting color because uh, true sea purple is wildly expensive. And it, you know, in antiquity, it was just the status color par excellence because sea purple is drawn out of the bodies of mollusks. And each mollusk, when freshly caught, yields like one drop of the dye. So it, it takes like literally thousands of mollusks in order to dye something purple or dye wool purple. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fabulously expensive way to show off your status. Um, and in addition, and I just love this part about purple, um, purple, because it's drawn from mollusks, retained its fishy smell, even if you washed the garment, right? So um, I just love the fact that Romans are announcing their status not only through sea purple, which is a kind of dark blackish purple, but also through its fishy smell, which we wouldn't necessarily associate with high status items, but the, the Romans did. Uh, and sea purple was so popular and so expensive that in time, the Romans evolved sort of counterfeit purple colors. So before long, you could get all manner of purple clothing and all manner of shades in ancient Rome, but that true sea purple, the true blackish purple, sort of remained out of reach of most of the population. 
because it's just so expensive. Interesting. Do you know where, uh, like the mollusks, do you know where all that was being imported from? Um, no, I don't offhand. Um, I want to say Spain, probably Greece. Um, I think there's also purple mollusks, mollusks off the coast of Italy, I think. Um, there has been a modern recreation of the purple dye using uh, modern uh, dye mollusks, which you can still buy, um, in the markets. And I don't actually have the scholars names to hand, but they went through the whole process of you know, buying mollusks and squeezing the purple dye out of them and boiling the dye. And it's, it's really quite amazing. Hmm. What was worn for shoes? Uh, mostly sandals, but again, it depended on your, your social status. So um, the sandal uh, is, a, is a kind of classless shoe, much like the tunic is a kind of classless item of clothing. Um, and the Romans wear really actually very modern looking sandals. Like the sandal design really has not changed since the ancient world uh, throughout most of their history. But upper class men, could also wear something called a calcaeus, which is a, a, a kind of enclosed shoe boot. And the color of it, um, again, could indicate your rank. So if you're a senator, you can wear a black shoe boot, which is kind of like an ankle boot, really. Um, and if you were a patrician senator, which means if you came from a very old family, then you had the right to wear red shoe boots. So again, um, you know, sort of every part of Roman male clothing sort of screened out rank and status. You could tell at a glance, or you were supposed to be able to tell at a glance, what class exactly the man came from. The, uh, and to clarify, the red shoe boot, it would have been inappropriate for someone to wear that unless they were from a particular family? Yeah, absolutely. And it's often said by modern historians that you know, wearing such and such an item of clothing was illegal for the classes that um, weren't entitled to it. And, you know, the, the problem with that is that the Romans don't have a police force. They don't have a, a police force in our sense of the word. They have no one who can police, you know, sort of clothing um, uh, assumptions by um, unworthy people. So if you want to go around dressed as a senator with a wide border on your toga and a, and a narrow stripe on your tunic and red shoe boots, you know, there's really no one stopping you. Um, I mean, I guess your neighbors can um, give you help, but there's really no law that you can be drawn up on for like impersonating a senator. So it, it's kind of convenient to say that these items of clothing are illegal to assume outside the class, but. Um, it doesn't really work like that. What were the shoes made of? Leather, yeah, leather almost exclusively. Uh, women also, women and stage actors um, have shoes which are called catherni, and they look like our modern platform sandals, and like with a really high um, heel or a really high platform. Um, they're worn in wet weather by women and by actors on stage who want to look taller, and those are made of cork. With a, with a leather upper. So again, it's totally fascinating to me because the, you know, again, we're still wearing leather sandals, you know, in the 21st century. So the Romans do, um, do, do some things right. Yeah, and I want to clarify that, that point, Kelly. So high, high-heeled shoes, did, did those exist in this period? 
They really don't. I mean, not in our sense of the word where we have, if you think of a modern day pump where the, the heel is completely separate from the other part of the shoe, the Romans don't have those, but the Cathermi are a form of platform sandals. So um, where the, the, the kind of highness of the shoe is incorporated in the upper. So yeah, so they have platform sandals, but not actual like high heel pumps like we do. Okay. Did Romans wear underwear? Oh, now there's a great question. <laughs> it's practical. It's a very, pra and, very yeah. pragmatic, very pragmatic question. Right. Yeah. And no, they didn't. They wear an under tunic, um, and this most Romans seem to have worn an under tunic, over which goes their tunic, over which goes the stola and pala if they're a woman, or the toga if they're a man. So again, lots of layers of wool. And the reason you wear an under tunic is because. You know, the Romans obviously don't have washing machines, they don't have soap, they don't have any of the stuff that makes cleaning you know, clothes today so easy. And so you want to not have to wash your clothing, your outer clothing very often. So what you do instead is you wear an under tunic and then the under tunic can be washed and you know pounded and um, um, treated very roughly, which is what clothes were when they were washed in antiquity. And that's the one that you keep clean, right? That's the one that absorbs all the body odor and the sweat. Um, in terms of underwear, in, in modern underwear, Romans do not wear that. So um, gladiators wear a kind of diaper in the ring. Uh, it's, also, it's often called a loincloth, but it really is a diaper because it passes between the legs and, and is pinned to itself. Um, but men and women of the sort of regular non gladiatorial classes do not wear underwear, which is so odd for us, but you know, for women anyway, um, women don't start wearing underwear until the early 19th century. They, they, those heavy petticoats and skirts provide enough modesty for a woman. And if she had to, in addition, you know, take down a pair of underwear, whenever she went to the bathroom, it would be almost impossible. So m modern female underwear, female underwear is a fairly modern invention. Uh, so no, the Romans do not wear underwear. It's not directly clothing, but it's, it's related. So I'm curious if you know the answer to this. Did Romans use under, underarm deodorant? Oh yeah, the, the Romans do place, they placed a very high priority on at least looking clean. Um, you know, I often tell my students that if we were suddenly to be transported back to ancient Rome, the first thing that would hit you would not be the togas or the buildings, it would probably be the smell. You know, I just don't think people smelled as good back then. The Romans did not know what to do with their raw sewage. They dumped a bunch of it into the Tiber. Um, there are big open urinals at street corners. Like, ancient Rome probably stank, like, like most of um, Western Europe, like right up until the 19th century. Uh, the Romans also have bathhouses, um, which are which are large structures with differently heated rooms and plunge pools. And but you know the Romans don't have soap, so the, the way they clean themselves is they smear themselves with olive oil, and then they used a curved metal piece called a strigil to scrape off that oil, and along with it the dust and the dirt and whatever else it accumulated. Um, that doesn't get rid of body odor, and so again, I feel like ancient Romans must have um, had a rather higher proportion of that than modern people would like. There, there was an underarm deodorant made from alum, um, which I think the Romans got from the root of iris, which is recommended as a deodorant because, 
you know, the, the Romans, I think, smelled more than we do, but they didn't like to smell overly. They thought that was really lower class. So, so again, the, the way in which you kept your body clean and the um, products that you used on your body were very much um, a product of your class and status in Roman society. So they, they do have something which looks like underarm deodorant. I don't know how effective it was, honestly. Okay. That uh, loin-tight garment that you said gladiators wore, do you know what the utility of that would have been? Well, um, again, gladiators are, uh, you know, people that uh, have a lot of physical activity in their lives, right? So um, they, that, that's one use for it, right? It's, it probably functions a bit like a modern jock strap. Um, secondly, they're also performers, and unlike the Greeks, whose sporting events and competitions were done entirely by naked men, the Roman, Roman gladiatorial combat is viewed by everybody, slaves, children, women, men. And so I think it was thought to be uh, a little bit unseemly to have naked gladiators in the ring. So I think it's both for a practical reason and also for probably modesty. Senators, was there standard attire that senators would wear? Yeah, tunic and toga and the black shoe boots or the red shoe boots if they're patrician. And if you're a magistrate, that is, if you're holding a political office, you're also entitled to wear um, a purple border on your toga. So the purple border is woven into the toga. It's not dyed afterwards. Um, and the, the purple border is probably on the upper fold of the toga, not the lower fold. Um, there's a bit of a scholarly controversy right now raging about where the border is on the toga. Um, and if you think about it, it doesn't make much sense for it to be on the bottom of the toga because that's the part that gets dirty fastest, right? It drags on the ground, it gets splashed with mud, it gets wet. Um, it's much more practical to have it on the upper fold, the upper loop of the toga that, that falls over the man's chest. Um, so, so that's where I stand on where the purple border is um, located. Uh, and in addition, senators are allowed um, to wear the uh, wide stripe, not the narrow stripe as I later, as I earlier mentioned. Senators are also entitled to wear the wide stripe on their tunic. And those are just two wide purple stripes. And again, we don't really know how wide. We think probably about um, six centimeters, eight centimeters. And they just fall from either side of the tunic on the shoulder and they run all the way down the, all the, way down the tunic. So that's the senatorial um, sort of outfit. Uh, hats are not worn in the ancient Mediterranean, which again is interesting because it's such a, Italy's such a hot country, but hats were seen as kind of barbaric and the Romans do not wear them. A similar question to the last one, emperors, did they have standard attire? Oh, now that's very interesting. It depends very much on the kind of emperor you were. So good emperors, you know, so-called good emperors like Augustus and uh, Marcus Aurelius, they're always said to wear clothing which is just, um, which is very um, fitting to what they are, which is the first among equals. That's how good emperors consider themselves. So the good emperor would wear a toga and a tunic with a, with a wide border. If he's a magistrate, you know, red or black shoe boots. Um, they don't, they, good emperors don't ostentatiously over adorn um, but bad emperors also are dressed badly. So they wear, wear entirely purple clothing, which is like not done because it smacks of royalty. 
or they wear entirely silk clothing, or they over ornament themselves with jewels. Caligula was said to have sewn pearls to the bottoms um, of his sandals, where you know you can't see them and they're completely wasted. Uh, so yeah, so the the clothing of the emperor depends very much on the kind of emperor that he was, or at least that's what we're told in the sources. So bad emperors also wear um, inappropriate clothing. When you look through the evidence, do you believe it is a case where good emperors were wearing what you described, and uh, emperors that um, didn't weren't weren't as 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 good? Um, were we wearing what was described, or do you think that in, 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 in to some degree, it's how the person was um, was write, writing about this the situation and the and the level of veracity wouldn't have been quite as high. Yeah, and the, the way you get remembered as an emperor is you know how you treat the senators because the senatorial classes are the ones doing the writing; they're the ones writing history. So if you treat the senators badly, you're going to be painted as a bad emperor. If you treat the senators well, you're going to be painted as a good emperor. Um, you know, and I don't actually know whether the, the, the biographies of the emperors are all that truthful, but what I find more interesting um, in the, those biographies is even if what the author is saying is not strictly voracious, the interesting thing for me is looking at the kinds of things which the Romans thought were inappropriate for an emperor to wear. So whether or not the, the, the emperor actually wore them, um, the Romans think that you know all purple clothing, all silk clothing, you know lots of jewelry, those are bad things for um, the emperor to be wearing. But you're quite right in that the the literary sources, you know, can, can be kind of untrustworthy. Um, it is interesting though when you read the biography of Augustus by Suetonius. Augustus is remembered as a good emperor, and yet in this biography, he is, Suetonius, you know, sort of very um, objectively says, yes, and he did wear some odd clothing. You know, Augustus wore a sun hat in the summer, and he used to wear leggings in the winter because he was afraid of catching cold, and, and yet Augustus is not castigated um, or raked over the coals for those odd clothing choices. So it could be that good emperors um, are allowed somewhat more leeway in their choice of clothing. So yeah, the sources do present an interesting problem for us, for sure. Yeah, and I'm not questioning if, uh, you know, if they, you know, a, a good emperor was uh, was or wasn't wearing that. It's just, yeah, it seems coincidental that it happens to be all the, the ones that are liked are, are also written as wearing one thing, and then the ones that are disliked are written as wearing, wearing something else. Yeah, and Augustus is really the only exception to that general rule. So yeah, you're quite right. Okay. Um, is uh, is there anything else in this conversation that you want to make sure gets across in the episode, Kelly, that we haven't covered yet? Hmm. Well, we covered color in clothing, which is super important. We covered no underwear, which is also important. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any more modern misconceptions about... Um, Roman clothing that we need to go over. Um, I guess I could say a word about jewelry, since that's my yeah, main research it. project, yeah, is, is on jewelry. Um, so, you know, as today, I guess, for the most part, um, men in ancient Rome don't wear much jewelry. So senators are allowed to wear a gold ring. Uh, and that's really about it. So there's other mention made of male jewelry, but it's always comes under a lot of censure by the authors. So an author will say, oh, I saw so-and-so, he's wearing a pair of bracelets, if you can imagine. 
Um, but again, women have much more leeway in terms of jewelry. And in fact, jewels are thought to be particularly appropriate for women because women are frivolous and they love shiny things. They're kind of like magpies. Um, and so jewelry is thought to be a huge concern to women. Um, and there are, there's artistic evidence and literary evidence for women wearing all kinds of jewelry, you know, armbands, chest um, chains, uh, rings, bracelets, earrings. And they're a kind of unnerving female ornament, I think, for our male authors, because the jewelry that women wore could be quite valuable. It could be jewelry that was a family heirloom or given to her by her husband, but it could also be jewelry that the woman purchased with her own money. And so, you know, the overly bejeweled woman is a kind of walking advertisement of her own personal wealth. And I think that kind of gets under the skin of some of our Roman authors. And that might explain the, the, the kind of um, derogatory comment that we find a lot um, about women wearing jewelry in the sources. You know, women are frivolous, they're attracted to shiny things. And, you know, it's just disgusting that she's wandering around with all this money, you know, hanging down from her ears, essentially. Uh, so there's some interesting, there's some interesting attitudes to women wearing jewelry in antiquity. Did gold have this uh, high cachet in this period of time? And uh, a, a, another question, uh, somewhat related: what 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 stone would have been? What's a stone that would have been um, uh, highly esteemed in this period of time that could be worn as jewelry? Yeah, that's a great question. And normally, people assume it has to be diamonds because diamonds have held sway in modern Western culture for so long, centuries. But in fact, the most valued Roman jewel was not a diamond because the Romans don't have fastening. Fastening is a, a kind of art that occurred that starts in the Renaissance. So the Romans don't know how to fasten. And diamonds, if they're unfastened, are, are kind of dingy stones. You know, they, they might, I think they were valued because they're so hard, they're the hardest stone. But when it comes to Roman jewelry, the Romans really loved pearls. That is the most expensive um, uh, gemstone, it's not really a stone, it's an animal product, of course. Uh, and pearls are what gets mentioned again and again in the sources as evidence of wealth. Um, you know, that's what the most expensive jewelry is made of, the most um, fantastic ornaments are made of pearls. Uh, the Romans really do value color over glitter in their jewelry, again, unlike modern tastes. So besides pearls, the Romans loved rubies and garnets for red. Um, uh, emeralds for green and sapphires for blue. But again, the Romans don't have facets. So most of the stones are left in their natural prismatic unfaceted state, which is why you see Roman necklaces not with um, cabochon, which are the jewels which are flat on one side and faceted around on the other. They, the Roman jewels are kind of cylindrical because that's the easiest thing for the Roman jewelers to do who don't really know about fastening. Um, so Roman jewelry is very interesting because it doesn't glitter at all. You know, it's not glittery and sparkly. It doesn't blaze like like normal jewelry does. Um, so yeah, pearls and those other stones, because they're colorful, are what the Romans loved in their jewelry. Interesting. And gold, did it have high cachet for jewelry in this period? Yeah, very much. Yeah, gold is the, like purple for clothing, gold is the, you know, the thing par excellence that you make your jewelry out of you know gold is super malleable um gold is very shiny so the romans do i think they probably liked the contrast between the shiny gold and the rather duller gemstones 
Um, so yeah, gold has is the the metal par excellence of the Roman world. They do have silver, but it's not used as much, you know, probably because gold has such overwhelming status properties that silver kind of takes a backseat for sure. Okay. I was actually going to do a follow-up question on silver and you just, just handled it there in that response, ah, Kelly. Go. Thank you. Uh, it's been great chatting with you today, Kelly. Thanks for coming on the show. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So again, everybody, the book that I, the two books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Olson wrote, She's author of Dress in the Roman Woman, Self-Presentation in Society, and Masculinity and Dress in Roman Antiquity. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Kelly and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.